This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, books that are timeless and charming, provocative and of the moment, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. I thought it would make sense, given that it's December and people are thinking about gifts, uh, that instead of doing an interview, what we would do is talk about books as gifts. Like, how do you pick a book uh, to give as a gift? And who should you give a book as a gift? And I subscribe to the notion uh, that you have to give everybody a book, that it's the best gift you could give. But the the phrase that's gained currency recently is the is the idea that you give a gift uh I, I think a mom said this about giving uh gifts picking out gifts for her kids and she said I give them something they want something they need and something to read which I think is a good sort of framework to think about getting somebody a gift and Therefore, we're going to help on the book side. So here's how we're going to do this. We're at RJ Julia's. We're recording here. Uh, we're joined by Lori Fazio, who's the um, chief operating officer of RJ Julia and the master uh, of the train known as RJ Julia's. And then we're joined by Andrew Brennan, who is our head book buyer and knows everything that came out in the last 20 years and everything coming out uh, in the next year. So among the three of us, we should be able to come up with a pretty good range of books for you. So I think with that as a background, we can start. So let me ask this question, because we get a lot of customers who come in the store and they come in and they say they know the person really well, they or they just found out that their daughter's boyfriend, who they never heard of, is coming and they don't know anything about them. So how do you think about choosing a book for somebody that you want to give as a gift, whether you know them well or you don't know them well? Why don't we start with you, Laura? Yeah, I'll start with well, that. Well, welcome, Lori. Thank you. <laughs> Happy to be here. Um, so I, along with you, think that everybody should get a book. So that's that's pretty easy to do. And even someone who I don't think is a big reader, I can generally find something for them, um, which I will be talking about that kind of a book today. Uh, but someone that you know well, you, you can you know what they like to do. You can come in and talk to a bookseller and say, I know they love this, and you know what else do you have for me that I can recommend? Um, or the other thing is you can give them something that you really love. And, you know, even if you know that's maybe out of their genre that they like, you can pick it and say, I really love this. And I know you like to read, you know, so I think that you should give this a try. Mm -hmm. Um, and the same thing for someone that you don't know very well, you can give them something that you love. Um, because I think that that's very meaningful and have them give it a try. And if they don't love it, you know, that's okay. It, mm -hmm. it still came from the heart. Or there are a lot of books that you can that you can choose that are more um, either inspirational or just kind of a coffee table sort of thing. Mm. Um, something that you know doesn't have to be read cover to cover, but they can pick up and look at occasionally um, and know that it came from someone 
you know, and has some meaning. Yeah. And I know in the store will sometimes say if they know a little bit or a lot about them, like let's say they know that they're a big book club person. So you try to figure out whether they like complicated books or uncomplicated books. You know, some people want everything tidied up at the end, Mm -hmm. happy with a ribbon on it. And other people like it to be ambiguous or people like me who like it to be dark. So there are lots of things, because I find sometimes when I see the booksellers in the store talking to a customer, a lot of times people don't realize how much they really do know about the person they're giving a book to. You know, they say, well, I don't really know what they like to read, but then you find out that you know, they're a school teacher or a business person, or they like to hike, or they, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you have lots of ideas. Mm-hmm. Or even where they're from. Yeah. You know, and you can, you can base a book on that. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, something specific that they do. Yeah. Andrew, what do you think is helpful to know? Well, I, I start picking out people's Christmas gifts in like April every year. So, one of those, so I'm, well, I mean, for the greater Connecticut community, you know, <laughs> so I, so I, not for your list. Well, yes, that, that too. But, but I mean, and when I'm gift giving for, for people that you don't know, I always find nonfiction to be the way to go and kind of what I'm, what I'm looking for when I'm picking out kind of the, the, the gifts that, that our store is really going to get behind is I'm looking for niche stuff um, that kind of grows out of that. For instance, you know, golf. I do not like golf, but if I find a golf book that I like, then I am going to be able to recommend that to pretty much anybody that wants a good nonfiction book. Mm. You know, it's- So your job is to pick out the best of an ilk. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So if so if you're trying to pick out someone that you, whether or not you know them, you're friends with them, if you like this book, and but it's not a subject matter you're used to reading about. If you if you like it anyway, they're probably going to like it too. Yeah. Um. For for fiction, I think that it's best really to rely on on a good bookstores booksellers. Mm-hmm. They've been in there and they've read a lot of these books and they're going to know the the intricacies and and who this author compares to and mm-hmm. who you might like. Um. Always rely on good booksellers, but I think especially for fiction. Yeah. I think that's good advice. All right. With that, Laura, we'll start with you. Okay. What's the suggestion? So the book that is going um, to everybody on my list. Yeah. In fact, I already started by buying a dozen of them the other day. Oh, you're so funny. Is uh, called The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. Um, the author is Charlie Mackesy, and he is an artist, cartoonist. He's worked with Nelson Mandela. Um, He worked on the set of Love Actually, Making Prince. Um, So this is a modern fable. And it's um, love, friendship, kindness. Um, Obviously, you know, it's an unlikely friendship between a boy, a mole, a fox, and a horse. Um, But they have a a universal lessons that they're they're taking on together. Um, The book is almost like a graphic novel, um, whereas every page has um, prints on it or artwork from, from the author. Some are in color, some are not in color, but there are these wonderful, lovely quotes, um, but they're in conversation with each other. They're mm. all in conversation. And you can open up to any page at any time and read something that you feel good about. Uh, for example, um, one of it is it starts with, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the boy answers kind. 
And then another one is the boy says, sometimes I think you believe in me more than I do. And the horse says, you'll catch up. Mm -hmm. So there, it's just a lovely feel good book and it's beautiful. It needs to be looked at, um, you know, in order to really understand it, you could read the whole thing from front to back. You could open it up to different pages. I just, I absolutely love it. It's, it's so, it's such a wonderful. And it's an attractive little, you know, obviously we're not visual. It's an attractive little trim size with a very, um, quiet, beautiful cover. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing that I think books like that are good for, I like to have like half a dozen gift wrap books at home, like little books that Mm -hmm. are good hostess gifts instead of bringing wine or flowers or something. And so I think books like that are also fun to bring for for sure, a hostess gift. Definitely. And it's a good family gift too. There are a couple families on my list that they're they're getting it as part of their gift. So All right. Yeah. Well, thanks, Laura. So, uh I'm I'm excited to talk about uh, one of the one of the best novels I've read in a long time and certainly the most timely Christmas novel that that I've ever read. I've never read it uh, for the first time a Christmas novel at Christmas and I'm glad I started with this one. So this is called Marley. It's by John Clinch. Um, and it is about Jacob Marley. All right. So in John Clinch's first book, it was called Finn, was a was a novel about Huckleberry Finn's father. So he's doing this for the second time. He's taking a kind of a minor character from a great American or great novel and making them the protagonist. Hmm. So Ebenezer Scrooge does play a large part in this book, but um, but it is really about Jacob Marley. So you find out from that, that that Jacob and Ebenezer met at Professor Drab's Academy for Boys when they were young. Um, Jacob starts extorting people and Ebenezer right mm. off the bat. Um, they they make themselves into great businessmen in London, basically on the backs of of the slave trade. So he pulls in you know all these great elements from the original Christmas Carol and and gives you a, a really fascinating original story on 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 this character that we didn't really know anything about until now as as you know Charles Dickens starts off Christmas Carol with Marley was dead to begin with and now we've got this whole novel about him wow i love that idea all right well i'm going to talk about uh we're going to go from a serious smart novel uh, to a book called The Martini Cocktail by Robert Simonson. Uh, and the subtitle is A Meditation on the World's Greatest Drink with Recipes. Uh, so I think I'll start with this. Um, in looking up um, where the name Martini came from, although it is actually in the book, I found these two quotes. One is H.L. Mencken called the martini the only American invention as perfect as the sonnet. And E.B. White called it the elixir of quietude. So what this book does, which is so much fun, and I don't drink martinis, but after having looked at this book, I think I'm going to take them up. So for one, it talks about the history of the martini. It talks about the history of vermouth and gin. And there's a very cute thing at the front. So it says a classic martini includes gin, vermouth, sometimes bitters, a lemon twist or olive, and lots of opinions. It's these opinions that the New York Times cocktail writer Robert Simonson uncovers in his exploration of the long and tangled history 
of the classic martini. So the first half of the book is like really fun stories about the martini Mm. and where it came from. And by the way, the martini is younger than the Manhattan. The martini was invented in like 1888 and the Manhattan was invented four years earlier than that. So reading this history is a blast all by itself. And then at the back of the book are recipes and and pretty illustrations that go from the classic um, to the sophisticated and how they've changed. So this book is like perfect for anybody who knows anybody who drinks, somebody who's thinking of taking up drinking, (laughs) or somebody who doesn't even drink but wants to be knowledgeable about martinis. It's just a wonderful little book. It's called The Martini Cocktail by Robert Simonson. Vodka and martinis don't belong anywhere near each other. They don't? No. (laughs) That book is right. Martinis are made with gin. Well, this is clear. But you know what's funny is one of the things that I've started to realize is, so the martini comes from the name of a company that was a predecessor of Martini and Rossi, and they manufactured vermouth. And I realized it was probably an advertising campaign, like a a gimmick or something, (laughs) to sell more vermouth. Could be. All right, Laura. Okay, so we're going to move to to movies. So you've had your drink, now you're ready to go to a movie. (laughs) Um, so the New York Times Book of Movies, um, the subtitle, The Essential 1,000 Films to See, is a, it's a large book. But for anybody who is a movie buff, um, likes movies or likes the history of movies, so this is a collection of reviews. And they're all the original reviews that were put out in, you know, what, the papers, you know, through the years. Um, and there's, uh, for the modern viewer, there's sidebars that have curated lists and collections of what they think about them now. Um, it's by category. It's by year. It gives you the the titles. It gives you the actors and actresses in it. Um, if they won awards, why you should watch it. Um, it's pretty great. And it's a, it's a very complete collection. It's not going to give you just... Um, you know, the, the pop ones, but it gives, it really digs deep to like Humphrey Bogart and, you know, all the, the great American actors. So I have a dumb question because it seems to me whenever I want to go find a movie, that's an old movie. And even though I'm paying excessive amounts of money (laughs) to streaming services and cable companies, then I can't find these, then it's not here. It's not there. So is there some trick anybody knows about the best way to find from where you can download or stream these movies? I'm going to turn that one to Andrew. (laughs) (laughs) You're you're asking a very difficult question. (laughs) But isn't that what's annoying? Yes. I have a book like that at home and I'm going to get that one and then I can't find the movies. (laughs) This is why we all should have kept our DVDs and VHS tapes. Right. That's right. Do you think Blockbuster will come back? No. No. That's over. All right. Well, anyway, it was just, a, it's a little pet peeve of mine. Yeah. Well, for, for you and others, you know, the book of movies, <laughs> the essential 1,000 films to see. So then you can, you know, figure out how to see them. Okay, good. <laughs> All right. Unfortunately, this book does not tell you where to find the movies. Yeah, I got it. I got it. All right, Andrew. Uh, so I'm going to talk about um, Atlas Obscura. So if, if you've been in a bookstore in the past five years, you may have seen this book. It came out for the first time in 2016. This is the second edition of this book, only three years later. Should you be wary of a reprint that soon? Absolutely not. 
it is it has 20% new material. It's got um full page city guides and a fold out map of around the world. This is a combination of a coffee table book, a history book, and a travel guide. It highlights kind of unique and bizarre places around the world. So it is both inspirational and informative for travel. Um, and the kind of culture that has popped up around this book is really impressive. The, the, the website that goes along with it is really active. They're updating places daily. Um, so it has really become almost like a lifestyle travel brand. Mm. Um, and this book is, you know, really lives up to that. It's, and it's beautiful. It is. I mean, it's physically a beautiful object. It is. I mean, just, just to give you an example. So here in Connecticut, the two places that they highlight are Holy Land USA, which is a defunct religious theme park and, (laughs) and, and the Cushing Brain Collection at Yale which is exactly what it sounds like. It's a collection of brains in jars. What? That that used to be in the basement of a dorm. So when you were like a freshman, you'd go down there and, you know. Observe the brains. Exactly, and touch the brains and get all weirded out and then go back upstairs. They now live at the Whitney Medical Library, but you can go see all the brains in jars. And And whose brains are they? Various people from the turn of the century, I imagine, from... from, uh, I think I think he collected these libraries the, these libraries. I think he collected these brains for about twenty or thirty years. A professor at Yale, and we've got them all still. I bet there's something nefarious about they got those brains. <laughs> these these brains are not very far from where you live, Roxanne. I know, I know, they're right down the street. They are. Um, all right, and the name of the book, Andrew. This is the Atlas Obscura. Okay, great. Uh, so we talked earlier about recommending fiction books. Uh, so a book that um, has been renowned since it came out was um, Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Strout. And her new novel, which I just finished, is called Olive Again. And I would say that Elizabeth Strout is a genius She is a worthy successor to William Trevor, who's one of my favorite writers. And what she does, what she did in Olive Kittredge, and she does, I I actually maybe liked Olive again even more than I liked Olive Kittredge. What Elizabeth Strout does is take ordinary lives and introduces us to them in simple, spare language that makes us love them with their flaws, with their um, strengths. You, you, it is to me perfect fiction, perfect fiction. The slight caveat that I would give is that it, it, it does contain elements of life is not always perfect. Life is flawed and things don't always go well. But nonetheless, you are you're cheering for the human spirit at the end of reading this book. And her empathy for all human beings is just palpable as you read this book. To me, this is like everybody should read Olive again. There you go. Lord. 
Okay, so I'm going to talk about a um, a picture book for all ages, young and old. So the photo arc of uh, vanishing, the world's most vulnerable animals. <clears throat> so this is a National Geographic book, um, and the animals featured in it are either extinct or they are destined for extinction. Um, and the photo the photographs in here are are stunning. Um, they're the pictures are bright. There's um, really ways that it pulls out the personalities of the animal kingdom. Uh, the, the jacket's incredible. Of, the jacket is incredible. I mean, you look think that, that this cat's like staring straight at you. Um, and next to the pictures, there are, are words and comments of the people that are working to restore these populations. So you're not only getting these beautiful mm. pictures, but you're getting what they're doing to hopefully, you know, keep the animals from extin extinction or, you know, populate them a little bit, a little bit more, but it's beautiful. And it's a coffee table book. Uh, you could give it to a family. You can definitely give it to anyone who loves animals. You can give it to a, someone who likes photography. Um, it's perfect for that. So the photo arc vanishing, uh, the world's most vulnerable animals. Great. Thanks, Laura. Mr. Brendan. Uh, I'm going to talk about a cookbook and, you know, full disclosure, I do not cook very well at all, but, <laughs> but I know an important cookbook when I see one. Um, this is called Jubilee Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking. So Tony Tipton Martin is the author of this book, and she recently won a James Beard Award for her previous book called The Jemima Code, which is a history of African-American cooking found in three centuries of African-American cookbooks. In her new book here, we actually get these recipes, mm. okay? So these are recipes um, mostly invented in America, but have been drawn from sources all over the world. They, they have been refined in the homes of the elite and the middle class um, for 300 years now. And it is rare that we get a cookbook in here that is truly definitive. You know, if you are a serious cookbook, if you are a serious cook or a cookbook collector or cookbook lover, this is something you need to have. Mm. And who doesn't want to properly know how to make jambalaya? Yeah. Yeah. I like to eat jambalaya. I don't know if I want to make it, but I could give it to Kevin yes. to make the jambalaya. Find someone in your life who knows how to cook exactly, these and give it to them. So the name of the book is? Jubilee. All right. So one of the things that um, has become alarming, I think, is the degree to which children and adults don't really know history. And, uh, you know, there's lots of ways to read history. I have a friend who um, read a biography of every pre United States president. And, you know, that's certainly a great way to learn history. So I like books that I think are smart, that aggregate these stories. So there's a book out by um, David Rubenstein called The American Story, and it's Conversations with Master Historians. So it's David McCullough on John Adams. It's John Meacham on Thomas Jefferson, Ron Chernow on Alexander Hamilton, Doris Kearns Goodwin on Abraham Lincoln, Taylor Branch on Martin Luther King, Robert Caro on Lyndon Johnson, Bob Woodward on Richard Nixon. Uh, and it includes a conversation with Chief Justice John Roberts. So this, you know, there's a quote I always like that Daniel Borstein said, planning for the future without uh, learning history is like planting a cut flower. And I think in these times when we're beginning to try to, 
you know, understand what the founding fathers mean, what really did happen in the early 19th and 20th century. It's important for us to steep ourselves in these um, histories. This would be great for a 12-year-old. It would be great for a 90-year-old. Um, it would be great as a family gift. And all of these writers are great storytellers. You know, they're not they're not dry um, stories that you're like, oh God, this is why I don't study history. And I I feel very strongly how important it is for us to steep ourselves in history in order to think about our future. Uh, particularly in times as complicated as now. So it's called The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians. Laura? Okay, well, I'm going to talk about history as well. Um, so a little bit little bit different. I'm, I'm keeping in the animal theme, but I'm also going off your history. So um, this is called The Zookeeper's War, an incredible true story from the Cold War. Uh, so we we hear a lot about history and the people and you know the fighting and and all of that. But this actually, um, when the when the Berlin Wall went up, um, there was a zoo um, in West Berlin. There was a zoo in East Berlin, and um, as you might imagine, with you know staying with the times, the zookeepers started to have um, you know a competition with each other. You know, basically it was an animal arms race. Um, see who could have the best animals. <laughs> you know, and who would have the most unique animals. And um, the the zoo in West Berlin was, life in general in West Berlin felt um, very similar to a zoo. It was very unkept and people were watching, the world was watching what was happening there. The zoo in East Berlin was more like a socialist utopia. Um, everything was perfectly mm. planned, however, rarely finished. Um, so this was, you know, this went on for years. Um, and the zookeepers, they wanted to be sure that they weren't proven inferior um, because then they think that the world would reflect that that was what their whole country's ideology I ideology was going, um, was happening. So they, um, it gives you a little bit of backstory of like the build up to the Berlin Wall. And then it goes a little bit past when the Berlin Wall came down. But anyone who likes history um, is going to find some really unique things in this book. I, I found it actually quite fascinating. And, you know, you learn a lot, a lot about some really unique animals. And the popular animals, one of the most popular animals was the anteater that they wanted in the Go zoos. figure. I know. And panda bears quickly became well, yeah. the hot item. But they would ship these animals all around the world. They were shipping elephants and crocodiles and, yeah. Wow. Really What's the title? The Zookeeper's War, an incredible true story from the Cold War. Fabulous. Mr. Brennan. So I'm going to talk about uh, probably my, my, my biggest coffee table book uh, that I'm going to talk about today. It's called Treasured Lands. It is also a second edition. Um, this book initially came out about five years ago, I think. It is the only coffee table book that includes all 61 national parks. Now, there are a lot of good National Park photography books out there. The reason that this one is the best is the author, um, Q.T. Luong, uh, L-U-O-N-G. Uh, he's been working on large format photography of the national parks for the past 25 years. He's made 300 visits to these parks. It has He has kind of become the unofficial official photographer of the national parks. Um, the most amazing thing that, that 
you know, the, these photographs are beautiful, but the really impressive thing that, that accompanies all of these is that there's a map of each parks as well as extended hike guides. And he tells you how, where he went to take this photograph. He's encouraging you to go recreate his photograph. He wants to engage you with the park. Wow, that's he a cool wants idea. you. It is a cool idea. Well, it's, he's not just making a book of beautiful pictures. He loves these parks and he mm. wants them to be preserved and he wants you to go there. So there is as much useful information in these, in, in this book as there is beautiful photography, which is why it's so great for any outdoor lover, any travel lover. I want to buy all the books you're both talking about. <laughs> um, okay. So we talked about martinis. The other thing that I think goes with martinis is golf. So I have two golfers, uh, in my family. And, uh, although whenever they play golf and I ask them how to, how they play, they seem to always play horribly. Um, so I don't know why they have fun playing, but nonetheless, I did try to take a golf lesson in 1971 and, um, I took it in West Hartford at a country club. And at the end of the lesson, the the um, golf pro said to me, you might think about tennis, Mrs. Cody. <laughs> so I'm not recommending this book because I think it will ever help me. But what I liked about this book, and I showed it uh, to my husband, is it's got a lot of very practical advice, whether you're a new golfer or a very experienced golfer. And so there are chapters on you know, playing with irons, which I know is a type of club, um, chipping, bunker play, putting. Um, and then it goes through how to fix your golf game or what are some of the logical um, faults that lots of people have. So this looks very practical. I think the only thing you might have to worry about is if you give it to a golfer, will they think that they don't play golf well enough? Right. And then I know other golfers who can't have enough golf books. So I would say this goes into the category of a new golfer or a golf golfer who says there's no such thing as having too many golf books. And it's a, it's a very nicely put together golf book. And Andrew, I know, is always looking every year for a good golf book. And so this one this year, we think is the one. And maybe even I'll take up golf again, but I doubt it. Okay. I can remember um, when I read Charlotte's Web to my girls and we would read a chapter or two every night. I mean, depending on what time of night we read it and how late I was going to let them stay up and they were clamoring for more. Um, so Charlotte's Web is, is a great read aloud story. It's a great story in general for, for families to, um, to do together. Um, there is now a new audio of Charlotte's Web that is read by Meryl Streep along with a full cast. Um, so it's great that you've got not just Meryl's voice and who doesn't love Meryl Streep, um, but it has a bunch of other people participating in it as well. And it's, you know, Charlotte's Web by E.B. White is a classic with everybody doing a lot of traveling at the holidays or even coming up in, you know, maybe February break or, you know, April break. It's, this is a great thing to listen to as a family. And it is a family book. It, it's, you know, it's got great messages and, you know, a lot of, um, you know, touching moments in it. Um, and so I just think the new audio is is fantastic. So I listened to Charlotte's Web on audio not that long ago. And 
I it was read by E.B. White. Mm, yes. And so I've read E.B. White for years. I spend a lot of time in Maine, so I feel like I know E.B. White, even though I've never met him. I have met his son. Um, and so I always thought of E.B. White as having this kind of patrician bearing and therefore patrician voice. But in fact, he's got a pretty, he had a pretty heavy New York accent. Mm. So it was like, you know, this old Jewish guy <laughs> reading Charlotte's Web, but it was E.B. White. So you can compare them. You can listen to the new mm -hmm. one. Sure. And that one's read by Meryl, Meryl Streep. Meryl Streep and other, other characters. Or the yeah. one, can we still get, is the one with E.B. White still available, Andrew? I think it is. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, if you can find it, listen to it. Yes, it's great. All right, Andrew, your last book. All right, my, my last book is my smallest book and my funniest book. It is called Pop Science. And on the cover, it says, Serious Answers to Deep Questions Posed in Songs. Mm. What does that mean? Okay, so let's take the, the, the famous Peggy Lee song, Fever. All right, does Peggy Lee give me fever? All right. This is based on research conducted at, at the University of Wisconsin. Apparently not so much with a kiss, but more so when you hold me tight and definitely when I stay through the night. <laughs> so, you know, apparently, I love that you song. know, the, these are the ways that she discusses getting fever from her in the song. It Kissing isn't apparently so bad, I guess, but, <laughs> but hugging tight and staying through the night. That get, you get doing. fever. You, you will get fever. You will get fever. Lori, do you like pina coladas? Yes, I do. Okay, so well, so does Rupert Holmes, and he wrote a song about it. So what the author of this book did is, is so do you like pina coladas, getting caught in the rain, dislike yoga, consider themselves to have half a brain, like making love in the, liking, like making love at midnight in the dunes on the Cape. So to say yes to all of those questions, it's only 2% of the population is going to be the perfect match for Rupert Holmes and his song. Okay, can I can I plead the fifth on all of those? <laughs> That's great. That it is, is great. it's great. It it addresses a lot of really fun songs and it's a great little gifty book. What's the name of it? It is called Pop Science. Wow, I want to get that too. All right, I'm going to talk about two books quickly. Uh one is uh, this book was getting a lot of press. And I was curious about it, and I went downstairs to our cooking section to find it. And it's called Nothing Fancy by Allison Roman. And I, you know, a lot of times we eat home a lot, and, you know, you, you pull out a cookbook, and then you find out you need some exotic something, or really you need to start planning, planting the grain, you know, two years ago that you're going to use. You have to go to New York to... You know, there are all these complications. So um, this book is not that way. But it doesn't mean that you're not eating um, wonderful food. So and this might not sound appealing to other people, but I love radishes. So it's got roasted radishes with green goddess uh, butter. And it's got smashed sweet potatoes with maple and sour cream. Yum. Like I could have that for dinner. And then, um, and it's got pretty pictures, so you know what it's supposed to look like, even though it won't come out uh, that way. There's a good basic uh, chicken recipe. And then I loved this recipe. It's swordfish with crushed olives and oregano. Mm. But they're all pretty straightforward. They don't need crazy ingredients and, 
you can get them done in a reasonable amount of time. So that's nothing fancy. And then I fell in love with this kid's book. It's called I Will Be Fierce. It's written by B. Birdsong. It's illustrated by Nidhi Chanani. I'm not I'm not sure I'm saying that exactly right. But so the name of it is I Will Be Fierce. And there's a little girl with like big eyes and a lot of hair. And um, it's just an inspiring books, book that starts with, today I will be fierce. I will answer the call to adventure. I will put on my armor. I will fill my treasure chest. I will go forth and explore new worlds. And it goes on and talks about all these great things um, that this young woman, I will search for light in the darkness. Um, and then it ends with, today I will be fierce. I will lead the way home and then I will rest. And on the last page, she's in a grandmothery looking woman's lap. So it's just a great book for a little girl. I'm going to actually give it to some grown-up women friends. Uh, and it's it, it, you just smile. You just read this book and you smile. So that's all the books um, that we're going to talk about today. Obviously, we could do a few more shows on mm. more books, but Lori and Andrew, thank you for a great job. Um, if you make me buy books, and I'm in my own <laughs> store. Um, that's pretty good. So, you know, go into your local independent bookstore. You'll always find booksellers that can either find these books for you or come up with other books that are perfect for everybody on your list. And just remember, you want to buy a book for everybody on your list. Um, so we'll go back through the five books. Laura, what were your five books? Okay. The Boy, the Mole, the Fox, and the Horse. I talked about um, the book of movies, the New York Times, 1,000 uh, films to see, the essential 1,000 films to see, um, photo arc, vanishing, the world's most vulnerable animals, the zookeeper's war, and Charlotte's Web audio. Okay. Thanks, Laura. Andrew? I talked about Marley by John Clinch, Atlas Obscura, the second edition. Jubilee, Recipes from Two Centuries of African-American Cooking by Tony Tipton Martin. Treasured Lands, second edition by Q.T. Luong. And Pop Science. Okay, and my five books were The Complete Golf Manual by Steve Newell, uh, Elizabeth Strout's Olive Again, The American Story, Conversations with Master Historians, the Martini Cocktail, Nothing Fancy by Allison Roman, and uh, I Will Be Fierce by B. Birdsong. Uh, so one thing I do know that happens when you um, give books is you get a very different kind of thank you note from those people. Because one of the things that um, I have found that when I get letters from people, like at various anniversaries of the store, uh, I particularly noticed it when we had our 25th anniversary. They tell us a story of a book that one of our booksellers helped to pick out for someone and what that book meant to that person or how that book, book changed their life. And there's nothing wrong with giving a tie or a bottle of wine, but they're generally not going to change your life where if you do pick out just the right book, 
it is possible that that's what you will actually accomplish. And isn't that the purpose of a thoughtful gift? So happy reading and happy holidays to everyone. Thank you, Lori. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Happy holidays. Well, you're welcome. (laughs) You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. Produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.